All right. Okay. Welcome to the show, Krish. Hey, KP. I'm excited to be on the show. So, Krish, you're joining us from Seattle, right? And uh, you said earlier, before we got started, that you kind of shuttle between the Bay Area, Seattle, uh, and back and forth. Um, how are you liking Seattle lately? I'm enjoying the weather. Uh, it's much nicer now in the summer. Uh, I think the sun sets quite late. Uh, but when I was here in December, it was very, very uh, cold. There was snow. Uh, but again, I'm a West Coaster, so I've been on both coasts. And I think I'm just naturally more inclined to say the West Coast is the best coast. Sorry for the people in New ah. York. My co-founder is in New York. So, <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. That's, that's funny. So actually walk us through, I mean, kind of for, for, for the audience, you know, who may not know much about sort of Firefly, so, you know, you yourself, can you give us a quick round of introductions to both you, your background, and then Fireflies? Sure. I'll start with Fireflies. Uh, it's an AI meeting assistant that joins your Zoom or Google Meet or video, other video conferencing calls, and it takes notes, it summarizes the conversations, it analyzes the conversations, and helps you remember everything you've ever discussed, ever. So that is in a nutshell what Fireflies does. It's that meeting assistant that follows you around. It's that note taker bot on your Zoom calls or Google Meet calls uh, or Microsoft Teams calls. So that's what we do. And I think the inspiration behind it or how we kind of got started was really around, we spend so much of our time in meetings. And uh, you know, if you're a knowledge worker, you're spending more than 50, 60% of your time and meetings are very expensive and you tend to repeat yourself. That was the inspiration behind right. it. Happy to go a little bit more into detail. And then my background is I graduated from UPenn and then I went and worked as a PM at Microsoft in their collaboration suite. We worked on a whole host of different tools. I was actually on their first growth team at Office and uh, very much a data guy, exp AB experimentation, those sort of things. I was working on that. And the reason I left Microsoft was I had a truly amazing time there. I was actually supposed to go to grad school, um, but then I had this summer break before grad school started. And that's when I went and met my co-founder in Boston. And uh, we were just tinkering away at a couple different projects. And then I thought, hey, this doesn't feel like work. This is more fun. Uh, I just yeah. want to do this instead of grad school. So I ended up uh, choosing this route. Yeah, there must have been a you know, pretty big leap for you going from a, you know, remarkably stable and lucrative job at Microsoft um, to, you know, the founder path, right? Which can be a little rocky. I know a lot of the listeners, a lot of my audience are uh, aspiring founders, right? They're, they're like, they have these beautiful golden handcuffs at either like Goldman Sachs or, you know, the big three or, you know, tech companies. What was that journey like for you? And like, what gave you that spark, that made you finally take the leap? So one thing for sure is being at a larger company, you naturally have more stability. You have very defined roles and responsibilities. The benefits and the salary is unparalleled, especially some yeah. of these, you know, big tech companies, Fang or, you know, the Facebooks and Amazons of the world, the Microsofts of the world who pay you really well. And you are focused on a very small subset of problems. Uh, also, for someone that's just coming out of college that wants structure and established practices, it works great. Like it's a really good starting point um, for people that just want to get off the ground. And so that work life balance, like it's so nice to be able to turn off your laptop after 5 p.m. Right. Um, at a startup, none of those exist. 
Uh, so I'm almost like, I don't want to discourage anyone, but it's like when you're getting in, you have to be so passionate about working on things, uh, putting in crazy hours, waking up at 3am to deal with server outages. Those are the sort of things that you have to deal with. It is not as glamorous as Silicon Valley makes it out to be, or TV shows make it out to be. Uh, but you have to be so in love with the problem that you're solving and what you are trying to do and the team that you're working with that uh, it supersedes all of that. And I think my motivation was just from my personality type, um, I always wanted to build things and I wanted to build things mm. fast and I wanted to have a sense of ownership over how it's shaped up. And so usually at a larger company, you have to earn your way up to do that. Like before you can own a product, you have to first own a feature. Before you can own a feature, you have to maybe work on some small incremental uh, bugs. So I wanted to kind of jump that and go straight to building and owning a product end to end. Um, so that was the inspiration. And I always felt that at startups, one year is equivalent to five years. So you can get a lot more experience and do a lot of things there. And I felt like experience was more important for me at that point in my journey, being a 20 something out of college uh, versus optimizing for that pay. You know, I think even after I've left, I've kind of seen with, uh, a lot of my friends uh, that have joined much later, the pay is astronomical, especially 2020, yeah. 2021. Uh, it was incredible, right? So I, in my mind, I'm like, wow, like why would anyone want to go to a startup and leave when you're getting paid uh, such a high salary, right? So yeah, right. I mean, it's it's the motivation and the, the desire to build that really uh, led me in this path. I've seen that as a pattern, like among a lot of the founders that I interview, um, it's the desire to build and shape you know, what their vision is or idea is that I think drives them to sleepless nights and you know, to, to take very emotional sort of leaps into entrepreneurship. Because it's really logically, um, like to your point earlier, um, it, is the, it is not the smartest financial decision, right, to, to be an entrepreneur in the early days at least. But in the long scheme of things, of course, it is the best thing you can do. But oftentimes that reward is far out and you may or may not get it especially if you're on the venture path, like you are, it's a 10 year game, as we all, as we know, it's not a bootstrapped, you know, a month over month, like three, three, four months, you can get to profitability game, right? So um, it has to be something that's deeply moving and some connected to your calling. Like you just feel like that has to be, like it has to be some irrational urge to build. And for, for you, Krish, I've seen from your profile, that you've, it seems like you've always tinkered with projects in college, in during your internships and after, how would you describe sort of when you learned that, man, I, I'm meant to be a founder? Like when was it crystal clear that, okay, I'm meant to be a founder? It's funny you say that because when I was going through high school, I thought I was meant to be a doctor. And that's, really? that's how I started my college journey. Um, didn't really think I was going to go into tech or wait, you didn't go to med school. Did I you? didn't go to med school, but I started off as a uh, pre-med. I was, shadowing yeah. wow. like doctors. I was doing research, neuroscience stuff at Stanford. Uh, everything I was doing that first, like that summer leading up to college and the first semester of college uh, was around all of these things. I, I had done like two cogniz cognitive science research stuff, like worked on like uh, certain papers that were being published. So it was a very different track. And uh, it was only in like that first year of college, what really turned things around for me was one, I realized I didn't want to do this for another 15 years and just study. Yeah. Uh, I had already done that in high school. And, you know, I think I was a relatively good student in school, 
but I wanted to be more, I wouldn't say entrepreneurial, but I wanted to get into doing things that were anything other than medicine because I just didn't want to study and I wanted to do actual things. And so as I was like writing down my resume, I'm like, wow, I have no tangible skills other than reading papers and uh, research and writing stuff. This isn't very valuable in the real world. So that's when I started working on several. I just started applying to a lot of different clubs. I, I explored a lot of different fields. And I think that's an amalgamation of what all of all the things that I've done. So completely unrelated. But I remember that uh, there was an opportunity where the there was this a tax board that was being created at our university and they needed to re- look back at, hey, do we need to increase tuitions or how does tuition get allocated or the the money that we have get allocated to all the different groups on campus. So I kind of went in there and had to learn a lot of these things. You run the math and you say, hey, let's do what's best for the students. Let's not raise. And instead, here's where we can cut costs and be very effective. So I always felt like understanding your customer or understanding who you're trying to solve problems for was really the, the starting point for me. And that was a very non-technical role. It was very business, but very non-technical role. Um, After that, I spent a summer learning to code, uh, especially my freshman summer, worked on a project with a friend where we didn't really have internships. Uh, So we said, hey, let's make our own internship and let's work on something. Classic thing that a lot of freshmen do. And so we ended up building pre-Facebook events, like a tool that would let you know all the activities that were going on around campus. And then we got a bunch of college ambassadors. We got a couple thousand students to start using it across almost two dozen universities. And it was so fun putting things together, starting something from scratch uh, and then having people to work on it with you, right? You're like creating something out of nothing. Um, And that gave me the thrill of entrepreneurship. And once I went to uh, my sophomore year at Penn, uh, I started working with a couple MBAs who were doing a project out of the Wharton Venture Initiation Program. So Wharton will fund a bunch of startups. And so I worked there. I was like, really, after the two founders, it was just me. And you're wearing multiple hats, doing a bunch of different things. And through that process, I felt like, you know, if I go and apply for a traditional software engineering role, am I going to have as much fun as this? So that's when I kind of mm-hmm. got into the PM side of stuff. I started working on a bunch of different things. Again, you wear a lot of different hats, but it actually felt easier to me than working at like an early stage, you know, three, four person company. Um, So that thrill, like, I guess you're a thrill junkie, like you want that craziness. Um, That kind of led me to to the route and, you know, ended up meeting my co-founder that way too, where we worked on hackathons together um and worked on a lot of different projects so was he uh, at microsoft did, where did you meet so him? i met him while actually in college and uh college, so i went okay. to penn he went to mit we met through mutual friends uh we worked on him what's his name Let's yeah so out. sam Udatong, uh my co-founder and cto uh we've been yeah we've been at different projects since 2015 so we knew each other several years before we formally started wow. fireflies so, so Fireflies began, when, when did it begin? 2019? So the product that we launched, uh, what happened in 2020. And then before okay. that, uh, 2018 was when we started building out the core voice technology, 2019. Uh, prior to yeah. that, we were doing a whole bunch of things like consulting, yeah. making ends meet, bootstrapping. You know, my co-founder wow. has a whole post on moving to San Francisco. Wait, when did you leave Microsoft? I left Microsoft uh, at 2016, end of 2016. Yeah. So from... Almost that end of 2016 to eventually when Fireflies took off, 
you were kind of like kind of making it, you know, making it happen, like surviving. Yeah, well, it's uh, you. St we started off with one idea. It's pivoted into like yeah. five or six things before we landed on uh, the voice assistant, the meeting assistant that you know today. Uh, but that's what I say. Like those two years from 2017 to 2019 was like walking through a desert without a map and realizing, wow, is this really worth it every day? Wow. You're soul searching and realizing. You know, that. man, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of you because of those two years than all of the rest of the success, because you kind of, you know, it's, that's the hard part, right? Most people would quit and go back to either Microsoft. Anybody would have taken yeah. you. It's tough because you're going to get something. different looks from different people, your own family, right. everything else. So you have yeah. to, you have to uh, how did you survive the Daisy, you know, family pressure, man? That's like hard. That's the harder thing. Yeah, uh, I, I would definitely say that uh, I'm very independent in, in terms of making my own decisions. So like my parents were surprised when I got into a good college or when I got into Microsoft or when I do this. So I always, I think, surprised them or told them last minute. And so even till I was leaving Microsoft, they were in the impression that I was going to go to Cambridge for grad school. And it was right. only like two weeks before I have to fly out to London that I said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Um, I'm going to go work on a startup. So your, your best defense mechanism is just delaying until the very yeah. tippy tip Probably time, not good relationship then... advice if you're in a relationship <laughs> or you're married. Uh, but in general, that's how I kind of operate was like, I don't want to talk about it until I know for sure. Right. So that was kind of the thing. It was very surprising. I think my parents were definitely patient the first year. Uh, but then second year, you know, they would be like, yeah, you know, if you were working at Microsoft, you would be settled down now. You could buy a house. You could do these things. So it's the common pressure of being in an yeah. Indian household. Yeah. Um, so I think 2018 was really, really tough because that's where, you know, you pedal to the metal. That's where it really matters. Um, I remember making a trip out to India in 2018. We were hiring. Really? We were uh, basically doing whatever we can to keep like our operating costs low and just try to survive. Yeah. Um, and then in 2019, things started to change. The, we solved some core things around the technology. Uh, we started having customers. We started building out a product. And then that's when we realized, hey, this is something that we can actually raise money around because I actually didn't want to mm. raise, despite all that desperation and craziness, we took some money from angel investors, but I didn't want to go out and raise a big institutional round uh, without actually building a product and being confident in it because I wanted to de-risk the technology for myself. Yeah. Um, whereas, right. you know, 2021, 2022, you could walk in and say, Hey, I'm so-and-so from Google or Microsoft. Give me like $5 million. I'm going to go build something. Um, yeah. if you have some reputation, like they were basically throwing money at anyone. Really? Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> Very different really times really. when we were starting. Um, but right. I think that discipline helped. and also the, the two things that stand out, one, this conscious choice of not trying to raise before you felt conviction. But the other thing that stands out is that, like we were talking about this at the beginning of this, um, sort of when we were interacting earlier, is um, that Fireflies and the way you were leveraging this NLP was pre-generative AI hype cycle that began, I think, really, you know, mid last year, yeah. maybe, I think. With the open AI, Jet GPT. So you were doing this in 2020. 2019, you know, uh, the idea of sequence to sequence modeling or uh, yeah. to be able to detect action items without any generative AI helping you or LLMs helping you, uh, to be able to detect filler words inside a conversation, yeah. dates and next steps. This is old school, traditional NLP uh, that we had to do. It's very hard. And uh, today, mm. the open AI 
API essentially makes it so easy that a, I think uh, anyone that can write a few lines of code uh, or even use Zapier can do crazy ML that maybe five years ago only PhDs could do at high levels of accuracy. Wow. And you have to train models, fine tune them, make sure they're not overfitted, and it changes for different data sets. This also influenced a lot of companies' ability to build products. So because AI wasn't as good back then, people took very niche verticals, very focused areas like, oh, I'm gonna do this, but only for call centers, or I'm gonna only do this, but only do it for sales conversations. Our belief was we wanna build this for every type of use case. That means there's gonna be a lot of different types of meetings, a lot of different type of conversational data. Um, but our bet was the technology will eventually be good enough where you can have general models that support everything. And I think that right. bet paid off. Uh, but when we were starting, the feedback and advice we got from investors, VCs, other folks, uh, advisors was you need to pick a vertical that's gonna pay you a ton of money. You need to do enterprise sales and you need to be very niche and you need to go top down. Mm -hmm. That was the flavor of the month. Like we had during 2020-21, product-led uh, growth, PLG, all of these things become the hype cycle because companies like Slack and Zoom took off. But when we were starting, we were doing PLG, people discouraged it, right? And we were building yeah. a horizontal product or we're, we're building AI and ML. They're like, this is an unknown space. Uh, so we don't want to invest in this area. So yeah, I think it feels nice to be vindicated, but even like the way we built our company, they're like, what do you mean you're remote from day one? Like you have to have everyone yeah. in Silicon Valley, everyone in the office here. So we didn't follow any of the conventional rules. We were distributed. Uh, we were horizontal. We were product-led uh, growth. And so not sales-led, but really around, you know, who charges $10 per customer when you can go up market and charge like $150 per seat? Uh, so we did all right. like the crazy things, uh, but it was a core belief that AI can be democratized and that AI will get better. Right. That's brilliant. Did you see the inflection point of open AI and generative AI? Did you sort of see that coming? I did not think that it would be as good as it turned out to be. We had almost a one-year head start with working with open AI and getting early access to GPT-3. I think for a lot of companies, too, the inflection point was when they saw chat GPT come to fruition. And so that was really like the uh, the game changing point for a lot of companies where, wow. What, what, what about it really blew your mind, you think? Like if you look back, like what was that sort of paradigm shift for you? The idea that you can do single shot or zero shot learning where you can give it data and have it classify it or answer things, it was definitely, that was the game changer. You don't need like millions of data points. Anyone can implement AI with a few lines of code, right? So that was something that was super powerful. What I do believe was all the companies that were already doing work pre-ChatGPT, pre-generative AI, uh, if they were moving fast enough, they can take full advantage of this wave. Uh, there's a lot mm. of companies that are now spinning up where, oh, I see generative AI as an opportunity. I'm gonna build a startup uh, on top of this generative AI model. Uh, we didn't do that, so like it was, it's different. So I think you're going to see a lot of shiny objects as a result where people are going to see an opportunity and try to do it. But the companies that have already been doing the traditional SaaS stuff, already have the users, already have the data, already have built out like a process, it's almost a catalyst. You're adding fuel to the fire rather than right. using 
that as like the way to get started. So we were in a, like a unique position, like where we were very lucky on timing. We launched officially in January, 2020. Then the pandemic happened, everyone went remote and- uh, which, is, which is a great, yeah, again, paradigm for shift, right? everyone wanting an AI note taker because they're having Zoom exhaustion, too many meetings. Uh, so it was a great starting point to get off. You got lucky twice. You know? <laughs> yeah, so that definitely like the inflection point took off there. There was a technology inflection point between 2018 to 2020, really around 2019, where the cost of transcription went down, the quality went up. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you have to build. Dude, what happened there? I mean, I, I remember five years ago, if somebody came to me uh, for this exact podcast uh, or any kind of like, you know, audio thing that I would be doing and they would talk about per minute. And I thought that was like, that was so weird. Uh, and I'm like, why would somebody pay anything per minute? Yeah. You know, and, but that was the standard. What happened? I'm curious, te technology wise, what is what happened there? Because now anything in terms of you guys or any other transcription is just like doesn't even count the minutes. It's only mostly uh, per month, ten bucks or twelve yeah. bucks. What happened there? So, I think that even today, if you want to go get a human transcriber to transcribe an hour long podcast, it will cost you about a dollar fifty to two dollars. Uh, maybe at best, you'll get a dollar per minute. Uh, for you know the podcast, so sixty minute podcast could cost anywhere from sixty to a hundred dollars, right? right? And with Fireflies, like the ten dollar per month subscription, you are essentially for one hundred and twenty dollars for the year, you are getting almost like unlimited meetings being transcribed, right? It's not right. even comparable. One meeting versus one year's worth of data. Right. So there's a tectonic shift there. One is automatic speech recognition got fundamentally better. Uh, to the point where you can't really distinguish between a human versus like the machine generating it. The customization of unique vernacular got better as well. So it was picking up things. Wait, so when you say this automatic um, speech recognition, are you talking about the chip level got better or are you talking about the so software service Both layer level? Both was important because you need tons of data to train on these things. You need to have access to GPUs. You need to be able to actually train on tons and tons of data and also, people took different approaches, like the new conformer approaches that were coming in. So they were saying, hey, maybe we can do this a different way. We can tackle this problem a different way. One where, uh, yes, it's a model improvement. It's also like the amount of quality of data that was available. Once a few companies are able to show you that this is possible, there's a lot of other folks that are starting to work on, on, on this stuff, right? And I think we might, in, in the near future, we already have some open source ASR stuff. Uh, it's one thing to use it and run it and train the models, but in the long run, it's going to be like the cost of compute, just like storage. When storage first came out, when Dropbox first came out, one gig yeah. was impressive. When Yahoo Mail came out, you had 25 megabytes of storage. And people <laughs> thought that was like, wow, that's a lot, right? And you have to delete right. your uh, inbox constantly. And then Gmail right. comes out of nowhere and says, we're going to give you one gig for free. No questions asked. Right. And all of a sudden, you can go back to emails that you've sent two, three, four years ago and search through that. In the same way, yeah. Fireflies has come in and said, hey, we'll help you remember every conversation you've ever had. So I can search back through a conversation I had two years ago with an important vendor or a customer and have perfect recall. So you're changing wow. the dynamics of the game just through the pure computational storage uh, architecture and uh, improvement level. So cost is a huge driving factor for enabling this. And the mm. thing is, we started when that 
was not clear when people said, yeah. I'm not so sure I can bet on costs ever becoming cheaper. So you have right. to be a little crazy to start early. Uh, <laughs> but if you are right and you take that bet, it pays off, right? Having some of that early advantage uh, to, to get going. Yeah. Right. So that's why, like, I think even so 2019, 2018, 2020 was really tough. We're like, how good can this technology get? And then how cheap can it get uh, to the point where, you know, this is no longer a defensible, like this is not like something where we have to worry about. Um, so yeah, it was a huge thing. What were some of the factors that helped you build conviction early on? I think for us, we started looking at doing things two different ways. We first AB experimented with humans in the loop, right? Having a small set of customers, like we know that people are willing to pay if it's perfect, but the technology itself was not perfect. So are they willing to pay less? Are they not going to willing to use it at all? So you have to figure out that uh, satisfaction curve where people are willing mm -hmm. to say, okay, I'm going to try and use this. So once we got real customer feedback and validation uh, that the automated approach can work, like, yes, you're going to have churn in the early days and yes, people are not going to be happy, but you have to just keep chipping away at the problem. And the challenge with Silicon Valley is that it's not about faking it till you make it. It's about making it so you don't have to fake it. Uh, and it's, it's a challenge. It's a struggle. So a lot of times when you're going through and seeing all of these other companies, you know, perception can always be mistaken as reality. So these companies yeah. seem like they're doing more than they actually do. So even when some of there's been so many competitors that have come and then died where they promise things that to do that they couldn't really justify or they were doing it in a very expensive way. So we've seen almost a dozen competitors come up and die wow. since 2018 uh, in this space. So I'm very, very practical and I'm trying to be as pragmatic as possible. I don't let the glitz of the valley like overshadow all the things that are happening because at the end of the day, no matter who's working on a startup, it's a hall of mirrors and you don't want to let all of these illusions. Oh, someone is doing something better um, that we don't have like ruin you or change you from the focus that you have. Right. Uh, think yeah. about Amazon when it first started versus right. them shipping from, you know, the garage books to now being able to ship anything within a matter of a day, sometimes even same day delivery. So you yeah. have to keep iterating, chipping away at the problem and that's when you look back after a couple of years and said, wow, we can do a year's worth of data. What used to traditionally cost one hour, we can do it for an entire year. And that's just yeah. constant iteration. That, that, that is a belief that I didn't even have till maybe a year ago. Um, but that's just a function of how fast the technology is evolving and improving. Yeah. So if you were to give one piece of advice for aspiring founders in terms of idea selection, Right, picking the right problem to work on, what would what would that be? I mean, one one piece of advice, but you can break it down to two or three pieces if you want. Yeah, though so there's a lot of different ways to think about this and how you want to consider it. So, one thing that I will say is that product market fit that everyone keeps talking about, like that that promised land of you know it when you have it, it doesn't happen overnight, and it's not one thing that will lead to it it is a sequence of iterations and trial and error that will lead to it. So no matter whether you're a first time founder or a second time founder, the assumption that you start with 
doesn't necessarily mean that's what the end product is going to be. You have to keep iterating and it might be on that fifth or sixth iteration and slight improvements. You're just steering the ship bit by bit, bit by bit in the right direction. It's not like a full 90 degree turn. A lot of those stories that you right. hear, the narratives uh, that you hear from people uh, about completely pivoting to something else rarely works. Um, and it's also really a stroke of luck if it does work for them. So it is a journey yeah. where, you know, you have to constantly iterate and ship. Um, and then the other thing is 95% of startups fail. So failure at a startup, like in life, uh, is only final if you stop trying. So as, yeah. as maybe that sounds a little cliche, but really you're going to fall a lot and you need to be okay with imperfections. That was something really hard for me, like where I wanted to ship the most beautiful product on day one, something that was perfect. Uh, but you actually are sometimes embarrassed by, oh, wow, that's how we used to be like. You need to be. Because if you look back a year yeah. and say, if you're not embarrassed, so if you look back a year and if you're not embarrassed at the product that you shipped uh, and how much better it is now than a year ago, then you're doing something wrong. That's how you mark yeah. progress. Like even not just products, but yourself as a person. Um, who were you a year ago and how are you today? And if you can't like say, I am significantly better as a person, like in terms of, fitness in terms of health in terms of like knowledge then you're not moving in the right direction right so it's the same thing applies to startups yeah reminds me of uh, this podcast itself i always joke the first episode it looks like i shot this in a dark alley like the lighting is bad everything is bad you know but this is the 60 i think we're in the 63rd or 64th episode and when i look back at some of the stuff i'm like man i was such a rookie that's the feeling you want yeah. right you want to feel like man that we were such you know, noobs at this right, at the time. So, no, that's a great that's a great answer. So, looking at markets and what VCs look for, if you had to sort of, I mean, I guess give your younger version, right, the younger Krish from 2018 about fundraising, what would be some of the advice that you would give that Krish, given this knowledge that you have today? So, when we raise money versus what happened between 2021 to 2022 to where we are at now. So I think we have reverted back to the mean. It's much harder to yeah. raise money. The terms are not as nice. So there is a lot higher of a barrier in order to raise money now. I'm sure like if you're an AI company, you can go and create some sort of magic out there in the market. But in reality, people were raising money just based on a deck and based on their work experience yeah. two years ago. And today, the question is, do you have customers? Do you have a product? And do you have revenue? When we had started, it was mm. a little bit easier than maybe what it was today. Um, still difficult where do you have a product, especially if you have no background? Uh, do you have customers? And uh, yeah. do you have like an opportunity to start making revenue? So it really depends on that part. It just depends on who. But I think today, VCs are a lot more focused on is this going to be a disciplined company? There's going to be some folks that bet yeah. on like this big future and people can sell a big narrative. Uh, I always hesitate on that because if you're raising hundreds of millions of dollars and not able to live up to that expectation, you didn't do right by your customers. You didn't do right by your employees. If you get down rounds, you didn't do right, right by your VCs as well. So I take a different approach where I say like, try to be as scrappy as possible build something where you're removing as many layers of risk so that when someone looks at it, they say, oh, wow, I actually don't see as many risks as I would for uh, other companies. So 
the VC needs to feel like you are a diamond in the rough. And the only way you can do that is by showing points of success and improving. So a lot of times when you're fundraising, you might first meet them early in, a, in the journey and they might not be ready to invest at that point in time, but show the progress over time. Like, hey, you know, when we first met, this was just an idea. Here, we built a prototype. Here, we're talking to a customer. Here, we have a uh, pilot contract in hand. Um, here, like we're doing this. So always show progress in the right direction. Mm. That always in, uh, impresses early stage VCs. Because at the end of the day, the early stage VCs are betting more on you as founders uh, and your work ethic uh, than your idea. Because the idea might change. You might pivot. But the ability to show continuous execution uh, is really, really the most important signal if you don't have already an established brand or name or reputation. Because to be honest, when my co-founder and I moved to Silicon Valley, we had some good names from a university point of view, but we didn't have any connections. We didn't have any network. Um, we didn't wow. know any like VCs off the bat. So it was something we had to like grind and prove. And again, there's a lot of noise because back then there were so many startups vying for attention. Uh, so yeah, mm -hmm. it, it was a grind. Tell us about your fundraising rounds. Did you raise two rounds, three, or any not notable uh, funds? For our fundraising, we did a seed round, which was about $5 million uh, in 2019, end of 2019. Well, that must, wow, that 2019, 5 million is different from 2021. Yeah, yeah in million, 2021, right? yeah. 5 million is like 15 million, right? It's, it's nothing. Yeah, uh, yeah. But it was a nice, sizable round from Canaan Partners. And then in... Oh, wow. That's that's a big name, yeah. yeah uh, thank you. Uh, and then yeah, we wow. raised our Series A from Coastal Ventures uh, this wow, past that's year. Also so another, yeah. that was uh, they did our uh, Series A, and then our seed was done by Canaan. And before that, uh, we had a lot of really awesome angel investors. So we didn't we had like some small checks uh, from different people. And then during our seed, we brought in some really awesome people like the. Uh, the head of product, the chief product officer at Slack, the CMO at Salesforce. So a lot of these people that have come come in uh, early in that journey. So some well-reputed names, uh, the first engineer at Dropbox. So like a lot of like great wow. names. Um, Peter Reinhardt, who is the CEO of Segment, he sold his company to Twilio. So he came on board. Yeah. So there were a lot of really awesome names that came on during that seed who we've been able to lean on for advice and guidance and uh, very, very yeah. happy about that. Uh, but yeah, it was fundraising was something where I don't like to oversell. And even my investors today tell me like, you know, you can be a little bit more, you know, aggressive in like what you, what you're saying is like, no, I, I want to promise less and deliver more complete opposite of what right. you're supposed to do as a founder, right? You're supposed to sell right. the dream. Um, but I believe that it's more important to make reality happen, uh, and show that yeah. a dream is possible. So it's the other way around, yeah. right? So um, yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think it's a, it's a, to be a founder, you have to be a little crazy, right? So it's not that you're trading crazy and optimism to pessimism, cynicism. You don't have I, I, what I'm even just from the last 40 minutes with you, you're um, stubbornly optimistic, like the fact that you, you know, made it through that desert storm like you talked about, but you're pragmatic. And I think that's a great quality. You know, you, you want to have that you know, optimism about a great future, but also live in the reality. Like where, where are we, what are we, what can we do technology -wise? So Silicon Valley is a land of unicorns, but we have to remember that it's the workhorses that often go the distance. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So Krish, one last question. 
this is because you know this is the building public podcast so of course we are, we have to talk about community and building with them how much of a role did your early community play in your story you know early users like you said early angels all of those people i think the one best advice that comes out of like y combinator or anywhere else that people may want to do more seriously than ever is just listen to your customers because more often than not you'll know exactly what it is that is required and uh mm. that to me was the community of beta users early testers because the way we launched fireflies was actually through our network of friends that started using it and then the virality of seeing the note taker in meetings and the word of mouth helped it spread uh but to this day i look at every user that churns they leave a piece of feedback we ask for it um, and when they cancel their subscription, I read it. I read it every single day for the last three years uh, why someone chose to leave Fireflies. And likewise, I read the compliments. I don't really care about the compliments. Uh, I don't take it to heart as much as I take the negative feedback. Uh, that keeps you grounded. So imagine waking up, reading you know, over the span of a year, hundreds of pieces of feedback that tell you why you're not good, right? Or why you were not good enough. And you literally use that to motivate you and uh, drive you. So I think that's that's actually been a really important uh, thing for us. Uh, but that community that you end up having with people that are giving you feedback, uh, it is the ultimate source of truth. It's the ultimate knowledge. Uh, same thing when you're doing sales or when you're doing partnerships or when you have a community of folks uh, that are reviewing and uh, helping build out your roadmap. So it's those people that have skin in the game that are going to always give you their genuine feedback because why else would they pay for the product, right? So um, I always like to kind of keep that as like the most, uh, uh, most candid thing. You know, what's, uh, it just reminds me of um, one of my friends, uh, this guy brought on the podcast a couple of episodes ago, his name's Lewis. Um, he uses this phrase that I've been using myself as well, where often people don't know that you're looking for feedback. I mean, and they are, may think they're looking for compliments, right? And so they may just give you, they may just like shower you with nice things and compliments about the product or whatever. And so he uses the phrase where he said, I'm hungry for constructive criticism or constructive feedback, go at it, like feel free. So basically the, the language, I'm paraphrasing obviously, but it kind of opens up this candid two-way door, you know, with, with your customers and allows them to realize that, oh, Right now is the time for me to be uh, open about where's the room for improvement, right? If you don't say that out explicitly, often you just end up getting um, just nice compliments, which is good, but it's not, you know, it's not directionally helping you with the roadmap. Right? I think so. it's, again, the perception can often be mistaken as reality. So if you are in an yeah. echo chamber where, you know, whether you're a politician, whether you're a founder, whether you're the CEO, if all you hear are nice things uh, or good things, yeah. you forget to know <laughs> what is going on. Um, and I'm a, I was a, someone that I loved um, history and mythology and like learning about like kingdoms and empires of the past. And I used to constantly hear that, like, you know, like a really good king back in the days uh, would actually go in disguise and go figure out like what's going on. What are the actual problems that people yeah. are having uh, versus having yeah. his lieutenants like tell him while he sits on a throne and, you know, uh, is laid back and having a chill life. So you have to put yourself yeah. in those like hard situations as an engineer, as a product person, as a founder um, to learn that stuff. And 
I think that people say don't take it personally. I definitely take it very personally, right? Because when you have 97 out of 100 people saying good things about you, I'm looking for those three detractors, why they weren't happy. And that's the stuff that keeps me up at night. Probably not healthy uh, as like a, <laughs> as a founder, but like those are the things that I take really personally. There were times when I right. wouldn't even eat lunch uh, because I used to do a lot of support uh, tickets when we were a small team. And like, I wouldn't eat lunch until that person's problem was like solved. Or if they said something yeah. about like, oh, you know, your product, it just doesn't work. You know, it's just not like, it's not good. And then uh, I would think about it like a lot. So. To, to, to the point where I didn't want someone, if someone said something bad about the product, it's a negative reflection on me. So almost as if they were insulting me. So that's why I took it personally, yeah. <laughs> but um, that, that was a fun answer. So Chris, last question is, what's next for you and Fireflies? Like in terms of you know, business roadmap wise, and then personally, what are you looking forward to? Um, you know, as a founder. So for Fireflies, we found that what we're doing with the meeting summaries is just the tip of the iceberg. We've built this end-to-end -end platform that is capturing the most important knowledge and information for an organization. And we are very excited about a sequence of new products that we will release. Uh, very similarly, what we're calling apps. Uh, the idea is that we want to allow users to extract any type of information they want from their meetings. So if you had a recruiting call with a candidate, you can have an app that will automatically score the candidate. If you have a sales call, you can have it pull out. Usually salespeople have like these acronyms called BANT, like budget, authority, next step, timeline, or medic, some sort of sales framework. Right. Automatically pull that out and put it into Salesforce. Uh, so a lot of really cool things, maybe automatically creating a lead scoring app on top of conversations. So you have this really precious, valuable data. Um, how can we allow you to build apps on top of it, low code or no code? Um, so really the summaries is just going to be one app on top of Fireflies. There's going to be hundreds of other apps. Uh, it's similar to when Slack released the Slack bots, right, for their ecosystem yeah. and their app store. Right. We're very excited about like this app store that we're building. Um, and all of it is going to be powered by generative AI. We're working very closely with uh, OpenAI uh, on some of this stuff. We've released two apps already. One is called Super Summaries, which will take your regular summary mm. and just you blow it up like to the next level where it'll give you a paragraph level summary. It'll give you action items. It'll give you a outline of what was talked about and you can click on different parts it'll give you action items uh and then we released an app called ask fred where you don't want to go listen to the entire call or read the transcript or even the notes just ask fred like questions about you know what was kp's most transformational moment uh, on his entrepreneurial journey and it will pull that out right mm -hmm. all, all that information without you having so think about it as like natural like how you ask alexa or siri questions uh right. we, we built ask right. fred so we're gonna have many more apps uh, and what do you feed to that? You feed just the the previous meeting or whatever the meeting that Fireflies joined? Yeah, so today it'll be based on the context contents of the meeting. Uh, and uh, you get to define like what you want to pull out of it. So it's yeah. almost like taking all the folks that want to like get certain specific things out of it. So for example, if someone says, I want my board meetings outputs to look like this. Okay, great. You can go customize. You can just literally go tell the AI saying, create notes based on this outline or this structure. Or on the sales call, I want to know what their next steps are and how long it's going to take to implement it. 
And after every sales call, if I get that information pushed to Slack, I don't even have to sit and review the call, right? I know like, oh, they want to buy wow. 10 seats. They need to implement this by next Friday. This is their blockers. Automatically, wow. like you are able to understand a conversation. So everyone has different needs and wants different things. Yeah. The summaries was just one of those needs, but there's hundreds of other needs we can satisfy. It's also amazing how long you stood with summaries too. You didn't like simply like, you know, move on quickly. And now you, I feel like you've earned the right to move on from like, not just move on, but like append to the summaries as a feature and the other things you're talking about, right? Because for the longest time, that's all you did, right? Yeah. Summaries. summaries is very subjective because there is no perfect summary. Everyone's going to want something different yeah. from it. Uh, yeah. So I think we're at a point now where I can have the summaries be written like a human and it's almost indistinguishable that a human wrote it. Again, there's going to be some times where the summary is really good, sometimes where it's not like that good, but we are controlling that variability to the best of our ability. And uh, I think the transcription summaries is why you'll come to Fireflies, but then you will stay for the knowledge base that, that is being created uh, and all the apps and workflows that you can do on top of it. So come for the summaries, stay for the knowledge base and apps. Yeah. And uh, help let Fireflies <laughs> turn all the conversations like voice into actions. That's the old, that was the dream, right? I say something on a meeting like, hey, we need to send this contract out to so-and-so uh, before next Friday. This is what they need in that contract. Imagine a future where Fireflies is automatically updating that contract, generating and say, hey, this is the contract you want to send, right? Uh, go ahead. Draft. Yeah, that's just wild. That's wild, man. Awesome. You know, this has been such a blast. Krish, enjoy getting to chat with you. I would love to go try the app right away. I mean, I, I kind of know the website, like I was saying at the beginning. Um, I saw the transformation from what I saw, I don't know, three years ago to now, with the generative AI. But given what I heard from your description, some of the cool things like Super Summaries and Ask Fred, I, I can't wait to go play with some of these things and uh, give you some feedback, okay? Awesome. Um, thanks for being on the show. And, you know, have a great Had rest of the day. Had a lot of fun. Thanks. Thanks, Casey.